Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. And tonight we have Fergus Bordovich, who is here as the author of Congress at War. It's a very interesting take. Uh, those of you who saw the, the program last week that we did on Dewey defeats Truman, uh, 1948 election. So we went back 72 years. Now we're going back to the Civil War. I don't mean that this is going to be like a reality TV, our conversation, but you know, a lot of people watch reality TV so that they can enjoy watching someone in worse condition than they are in their lives. And so no matter how bad it seems that we are having as a society right now with this crisis, uh, the triple crisis uh, with racism and COVID-19 and the elections and the economy, so many things are going on, but it, it really doesn't compare to the run-up to the Civil War and what happened right after that. We're not here to make you feel good about what's going on now, but it can get worse. I shouldn't say that, but it can. <laughs> so uh, we're going to start. Thank you very much for coming uh, and, and, and joining us in our studio here in uh, San Francisco. And uh, you, can, uh, you can just uh, give us a background on the book, and then we'll start discussing it. Uh, sure, George. Uh, thanks for having me here. It's a great pleasure to be at the Commonwealth Club, which is uh, kind of a neighborhood venue for me. Mm -hmm. I've uh, been to ever so many events here, and it's, uh, and it's even uh, a greater pleasure to be here talking about this book. This is a political book. It's about the politics of the Civil War from an angle that has not usually been uh, uh, treated before, which is to say, from Capitol Hill. Far more often, insofar as anybody talks about the politics of the war, any historian at least, uh, we're talking about Abraham Lincoln as if he was the government all in himself, when in fact, this being a government with three branches, as we presumably all know, uh, Congress played an extremely vigorous role in the war, challenging Lincoln in many, many ways. And in fact, I would argue, and I do argue in the book, leading the war effort and often leading Lincoln forward rather than Lincoln leading Congress forward. Very interesting argument that you make in your book. I, I, I thought, and, and very well uh, laid out um, and unusual, and that's why we like the book. So go ahead. Thanks. So I thought perhaps we could take a quick Cook's tour <laughs> of uh, Washington and the Civil War. Okay, we all know, presumably, that the Civil War began with the firing on Fort Sumter in April 1861. And uh, the image you see here is from a southern battery firing a cannonade against the beleaguered fort there in the middle of Charleston, South Carolina mm -hmm. Harbor. We, we talk about the first shot at Lexington in, mm -hmm. in 1776 as the shot heard around the world. Well, this shot you can think of as the shot that certainly reverberated throughout the United States mm -hmm. uh, and changed, in a way, changed everything. As quickly as possible, Lincoln and the political men in Washington begged northern states to send troops to mm -hmm. Washington to its defense. Why? Because there were no troops defending Washington in 1861. There were about 500 federal soldiers in or near Washington, D.C. The entire United States Army in 1861 was about 16,000 men, mm -hmm. and virtually all of them were in the West mm -hmm. on posts intended to contain or fight Indians. So this image is of a Massachusetts regiment that was rushed to Washington. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner of the image, you see the United States Capitol there. Mm -hmm. And these soldiers are not attacking the Capitol. They're 
on maneuvers, but it kind of gives you a kinetic sense of, of what was happening right in the nation's capital. And people don't think about it, uh, you know, visually that often, but Washington, D.C. is basically surrounded by southern states. So it, it was in, in, a, in a very difficult situation uh, from, from a geographical point of view. Precisely. There were uh, subversives, in, uh, particularly in Maryland, mm. who, who uh, swore that they'd prevent federal troops from reaching Washington, and mm. it was touch and go for a while. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the United States Capitol, where practically all the action in my book takes place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same building we know today, except you'll obviously notice that the dome isn't complete, and it mm-hmm. wasn't complete, and it's a wonderful image, I think, of the, of the Union, incomplete, mm-hmm. shattered blocks of the dome were lying around the grounds. Mm-hmm. Th- this picture dates from Lincoln's inauguration in 1861. And uh, many people saw this as, as, as a, an image of the shattered Union, which would never again be complete. Mm-hmm. And it's it interesting how we like those images, you know, because it's, it's irrelevant whether the building was completed or not completed at the time, but, uh, but when you get caught with those images, they, they're much more powerful often than the reality behind the whole thing. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Uh, this, we'll, we'll see this picture again, so I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. Remarkably, there are extremely few images of Congress mm-hmm. actually doing business or in session during the Civil War. This was my favorite. It's on the cover of the book as mm-hmm. well. And you get a sense of the, the chaos, the, the, the uh, well, even the idleness. A few of the members are reading newspapers here. <laughs> somebody else on the left make, giving an oration and uh, somebody else in the middle of the floor seems to be either about to leap up and yell at him and so on. Yeah. It was noisy, it was cant- contentious, chaotic, and a very exciting place. You, you can't easily see this in this image, but yeah. way up at the top in the galleries, it's packed with visitors, tourists. People would come from all over, and the hottest ticket in town was to, to uh, sit in the gallery in Congress and watch the show. <laughs> there are four people in a row here, and I... I I want you, if you can, to take in their images. We can come back if there's a yeah. reason to later on. And these, are, these four men are the central figures in the book. They all played extremely important roles on Capitol Hill during the war. Uh, two of them are Republican radicals. Republicans were the radicals of the time. Mm-hmm. By far the more forward-looking party, the Democratic Party, was frankly, by and large, reactionary. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but... Uh, the reactionaries in politics in the United States are all Democrats. Mm-hmm. The Democrats are divided between war Democrats and peace Democrats. Thaddeus Stevens, Thaddeus Stevens is one of the, in my view, one of the great American political figures who deserves to be much better known than he is. He was a ferocious abolitionist, a brilliant politician, a brilliant politician on the floor of Congress. He represented Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He was uh, remarkable in many ways, among others, but significantly as being one of the rare men of his time who had no racial prejudice. You bring up several cases of that, and we'll go into them a little bit later, but it was amazing across all boundaries. He said some things at certain times that sounded a little bit vague, but that was for political reasons. In in all of his writings, he was really straight up on an issue which... Yes, you, I probably couldn't find another person that straight up on the issue at the time. Yeah, there was uh, virtually no one further out in front 
mm-hmm. on on arguing for the rights of African Americans than Thaddeus Stevens. Mm-hmm. Before the war, he his properties in Lancaster had served as safe uh, houses for the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. He put his his money and his reputation where his mouth was. He even even stood up for the Chinese in California, which he did. At which the time was almost unusual. nobody did. Nobody did. Yeah. Uh, this is Ben Wade, Benjamin Franklin Wade of Ohio, another fierce abolitionist, a two-fisted radical known as Bluff Ben mm-hmm. to his friends or maybe to his enemies as well. <laughs> Uh, he was a kind of take-no-prisoners progressive of the time. Mm-hmm. And I use that word advisedly because that wasn't in use, but that's what he was. Mm-hmm. He, he was a man committed to fighting for a better future for ordinary Americans uh, and also for African Americans. And his role during the war that I spend the most time on is as the chairman of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, which doesn't sound very exciting, but it was, Mm -hmm. because that committee was possibly the most powerful single committee on Capitol Hill, and it monitored, it wrote herd on the war effort. It, uh, under Wade's direction, it tried to push the war effort further, than much further and faster than Lincoln wanted to go, way ahead of Lincoln on seeing the need to fight what's called a a hard war, a war that really had to be won in the field. Uh, and also in investigating uh, generals who, who, who uh, like uh, George C. McClellan, who were dilatory mm-hmm. in their strategy and tactics and who seemed not to really want to win, not to really want to fight battles, who, who, who tried to fight with kid gloves when it was a war that could not be fought with kid gloves. I think it was one of the things that you brought up that was very interesting was that he published all of that information yes. with all kinds of, even before the end of the war, yes. as if the guy who was in charge in the government was also stealing the Pentagon Papers and putting them out with the New York Times. I mean, that's what I was thinking of. And I, another very unusual but politically intelligent move on his That's part. an excellent comparison mm-hmm. or analogy. It, it is. It, it, yeah, the, the reports of the Joint Committee, as they're called, are all online. Mm-hmm. You can get these online. Uh, they make extraordinary reading. Mm-hmm. On the whole, they're highly readable, mm-hmm. although it's primarily uh, congressional testimony. Right. Some of it flows, some of it doesn't. But you, when you read that, those reports, you are reading about the war in real time. Mm-hmm. And yes, he, he saw that those, those uh, reports, he wrote them all himself. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary. Yeah. And he also, by the way, I should mention this because it may not otherwise come up, he led the uh, members of the committee to Tennessee in 1864 to take on-the-ground first-person testimony in the aftermath of the Fort Pillow massacre Mm -hmm. when uh, a Confederate general, uh, Bedford Forrest, massacred black federal troops at a fort in Tennessee, Mm -hmm. the worst war crime committed on American soil apart from the Indian Wars. Mm -hmm. And, and, And Wade personally went there, found survivors, and interviewed them. And that's a separate report published by the committee, which yeah. is still is still hair-raising today. And it's not, it was a, a great story about that story, which is, you know, lost to history most of the time. But it was also very interesting how th- that they, he didn't seem to care about the danger. I mean, he went right in uh, just a couple of days later when he found out about it, brought a whole committee with him from Washington. And I don't know how they traveled there, but they, and, and interviewed everybody while it was still fresh. I thought that was, it was courageous in addition to being, um, you know, really honest about, a war while it's going on. Very much so. We probably wouldn't even have a record. Right. That would have disappeared. Uh, had, had he not been there to, to take that testimony. Right. Half a million, you know, 
people died and this was, you know, a couple hundred or something like yeah. that, but it was done in yeah. such a way that it needed its attention. Yeah. Yeah. William P. Fessenden, uh, Senator from Maine, he was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Now, I grant you that doesn't sound like a very <laughs> sexy job, but this, is, this man was one of the pivotal figures in making it possible for the union to win the war. Why is that? The war to be paid for. And it's remarkable how rarely historians write about the cost of the war. I mean, the, the monetary cost, as, uh, apart from the human cost, although you can't disentangle them. Right. In 1861, nobody knew how the war could be paid for. In fact, many thought it couldn't be paid for. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's, it's somewhat analogous to the economic prospects we have today mm-hmm. dealing with the COVID pandemic mm-hmm. and the uh, tremendous impact this is having on today's economy. Mm-hmm. The Civil War cost money that was unimaginable in 1861 and had to come from somewhere. And William P. Fessenden and Thaddeus Stevens, who was chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, the Money Committee, mm-hmm were the men who made that possible. They, they applied their brilliant political instincts. Uh, they were both marvelous parliamentarians. Mm-hmm. And again, it doesn't sound as if it would be a sexy story, but frankly, it is. It is. And it, it, what's interesting is that they, they were uh, a congressman and a senator both understood finance because they really understood what it was that would drive it to work. One of the details in your book that I found fascinating was there was only $100 million in American money. Most of it people don't remember, of course, but it wasn't national money. It was all uh, issued by banks and uh, all across the country, and, and that this whole war created the national currency, which called yeah. greenback, all that kind of stuff. But they had to, they started with $100 million all together in the entire country, and they, they knew it was going to cost four or $500 million or $300 million, I think was their first estimate, but it ended up costing $2 billion, and in four years, they were able to convince enough people that you have a nice side story, which we won't go into with, about Jay Cook, uh, you know, just figuring sure. out how to sell these things, which was also fascinating, uh, but it's not the core of the story. But uh, that, that part of, the, of what you wrote was uh, very interesting, you know, because you covered something that people don't usually cover yeah. when they talk about the war. It was an era of remarkable innovation yeah. in many areas, uh, one of which was the national finance. Right. So we talk about the other big things that they did a little later, what the Congress did, because that, that, they did so many different things like that. Yeah. But. It was an incredibly creative period yeah. politically. Now, this gentleman, Clement L. Vallandigham, uh, is, in a way, serves as a kind of counterexample yeah. in my book. He was a reactionary Democrat. He was from Dayton, Ohio, a member of the House of Representatives, and he was the leading copperhead. And I'm going to jump ahead briefly. Copperheads, snakes. Copperheads were essentially hardcore peace Democrats, anti-war Democrats mm-hmm. who, who wanted the war to be end at any cost. Uh, they, many of them uh, refused to appropriate money for the army. Mm-hmm. And this is a newspaper cartoon, obviously. And here's an image of the Union uh, fending off three copperheads. And uh, Americans who saw this during the war would have, would have seen Clement Vallandigham mm. as one of these heads, yes, gentlemen. <laughs> now, to be fair, although I grant you it's a little tough to be fair to a guy who was a deep-dyed racist, mm-hmm. an opponent of a war which I believe had to be fought and won, but he was deeply sincere in what he believed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a pre-war Douglas 
Stephen A. Douglas, mm-hmm. Democrat. He spoke to the working class. He represented Irish and Germans and working class people. And he, at times, uh, argued for people, for example, against mistreatment of American seamen in the Navy and on the high seas. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't a man without a heart, but he was, he was a man whose heart was not in the war or, or in the needs and aspirations of African Americans. He was perfectly happy to see slavery continue. Yeah. He, you, have, you have a couple of stories of him sitting up uh, in, in uh, what's, what's uh, now Ottawa in Canada, right across from Michigan, and you know, having people come to him all the time. He was so famous they would come. But, but uh, the leaders of the uh, rebellion would come and talk to him, too, of the Confederacy. I, I, I should say, why was he in Canada? Since yeah. he was a U.S. Yeah, congressman. You tell why he's in Canada. And he was, he was uh, the, the Republicans gerrymandered him out of his seat. Mm-hmm. He was defeated in 1862. And in 1863, he was arrested, uh, potentially as a traitor. Mm-hmm. He seemed to be charged with treason for his many things that he said were, that were favorable to the South. And it caused such an outcry because it was considered that he was arrested by our only arguably constitutional means. Mm-hmm. And it has to be said that he's also significant because he was a real wartime dissident. Mm-hmm. We may honor such dissidents uh, like Eugene Debs in other wars. Mm-hmm. George McGovern. George McGovern. But he uh, wasn't quite so... We, we find it hard, very hard to <laughs> step into his shoes yeah. because of where, where he was coming from. Any, at any rate, finally, he was taken out of jail and he was expelled to the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. He was taken and dumped across the, the line in Tennessee. And the, the Confederates didn't know what to do with him, really. They didn't actually want him because he was a great use to them in the North as a, as a, as a gadfly. Mm-hmm against the war effort, but in the Confederacy, he was nothing. Right. So they saw that he made it to the coast, was put on a steamboat, took, took various steamboats to Canada via Bermuda, Bermuda, Canada, came down the St. Lawrence River and wound up, yes, in Ontario, mm-hmm. watching uh, right across the river from Detroit, where he in, r- ran for governor of Ohio in absentia. Happily, he was not elected. <laughs> now, you may or may not recognize this face as Abraham Lincoln. And I particularly chose this image, which is in the book, mm-hmm. precisely because it's not the Lincoln, it's not Father Abraham mm-hmm. that we know from later in the war, a haggard from four years of war, aged. This is Lincoln just before his election. No beard. Mm-hmm. No beard. Not all that old. Mm-hmm. And uh, still... The war hasn't even happened yet. This is a face that's looking toward what the events that will lead to war. Mm-hmm. We can talk more about Lincoln later. Perhaps. Okay. And next to the last image I'm going to show you here, th- this happens to be one of the other rare scenes of the floor of Congress during the war, January 1865. It's the passage of the 13th Amendment, mm-hmm. which was probably one of the most emotional moments in all of American history on the floor of Congress with everybody, people who never imagined, members who mm-hmm. never imagined they'd vote for emancipation, mm-hmm. throwing their hats in the air and cheering because they knew it was a watershed in history. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's the political climax of the war because it, it culminates the long, long struggle, political struggle within the war to emancipate the nearly four million enslaved people in the South. Mm-hmm. And again, the driving force for that was coming from Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Capitol Hill. It took Lincoln longer to sign on to that 
but it climaxes here in January. You have a great, great detailed stories in there about the fact that the Senate passed the, the 13th Amendment without any trouble. The Congress did not pass it. And that then there was a lot of horse trading going on, yes. which, which we'll maybe not talk about. But, but Lincoln was a horse trader of trying to get the votes, people to switch their votes so that it would pass. Um, and it only passed by two votes or something like that. So I, I thought it was very interesting. People don't think of Lincoln as being that blatantly political. It's one of the rare, rare moments during the war when Lincoln is political that way. Mm-hmm. It's un- not typical at all. Mm-hmm. It's unusual because he, once he, he decided that emancipation had to come, he threw his political capital into it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It deserves history's honor yeah. for that. I mean, he switched to vote by giving somebody an ambassadorship oh. one place and switched another vote. I mean, yeah. the usual way that people are doing, but it's not usually yeah. associated with the way Lincoln got things. Oh, right. yes. Uh, a lot of it was um, halfway under the table. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay, so let's leave this here. You've seen this image, and here we are. We're on the floor of Congress in, 18, okay. in 1861 or any time during the war. All right, before we go back to the four gentlemen that we're going to focus on, now let's talk about Lincoln uh, just a little bit more before we get onto that, because most people, of course, think of the Civil War in terms of Lincoln and Lincoln's approach and Lincoln's viewpoint. So what I found fascinating about your book was that uh, plenty of people have written about the fact that Lincoln was not tested at the beginning and he, he made mistakes and so on and so forth. Your view was fascinating in that you showed so many different viewpoints, all of whom didn't think much of him. So that in 1864, one term in while he was up for re-election, there was a dump Lincoln movement from his own Republicans. And just to review what you showed, the radical Republicans thought he was unprincipled and, and, and dilatory, didn't move fast enough. Weak. Weak, weak. weak. If you went to Frederick Douglass at the time, he, he didn't trust him for the same reasons. He got excited at the Emancipation Proclamation, but didn't think that was enough. Finally came in on the 13th Amendment and, and now was praising Lincoln. Yeah. So it took him until 1864 to really be a backer. And you take the Union Dems, the, the, the Democratic leaders who were in the North that were against the war. They thought that he was, what, what do they call him? They go a widowmaker, a dictator, and a bankruptor of American yeah. finances. So that was the way they looked at it. Obviously, the people in the South thought that he was a tyrant, Right. And, and and so all these people, it didn't seem like anybody liked him, the people on his side, not his side. So how did he go from that situation for four years where everybody was giving him such a hard time about it to the most admired president? It's not just that he got killed. So what, what's your what's your point? What's your point of view on that one? OK, I, I don't think we can discount the, uh, the fact that he was martyred. Yeah. He was murdered at the moment the war was won, mm-hmm. at the very moment, just days after Appomattox. Right. And Lincoln grew a great deal in office. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one reason he was a great president, arguably the greatest. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a reach at all. I think he probably was the greatest. He grew immensely from a guy who'd been nothing more than a one-term congressman in the late 1840s, you know, a regional politician out there in Illinois, Mm -hmm. Uh, with virtually no national experience, not very well prepared Mm -hmm. uh, for the war that came. Nobody expected a war that was going to last four years. No one, Mm -hmm. no one, or those few who did, were were laughed off as extremists. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was unprepared. Most members of government were unprepared. But Lincoln, arguably more than 
than most. But he grew. He became wise in office. He worked to understand the nature of war, mm -hmm. which he didn't at the beginning. He was averse, uh, as many were, averse to war. And he eventually slowly embraced emancipation. Mm -hmm. He didn't start out as, as, a, as an emancipationist. Mm -hmm. He made very clear he would restore the Union, slavery intact, if he could do it mm -hmm. early on. Uh, but he embraced emancipation. And then once he embraced it, he threw himself behind it. Mm -hmm. I think that could another, could another president have won the war? Yes. Mm -hmm. There were other men who could have served as president and won the war. And we're going to talk about a couple of them. Yes. <laughs> but Lincoln did a very, very good job with hindsight. But bear in mind, he was also assassinated at the pinnacle of his, of his, of popularity, which came very late. Mm -hmm. It came after his victory in 1864. And popularity mostly came from Union victories in the field, mm -hmm. uh, particularly Sherman's capture of Atlanta in 1864. And by early 1865, finally, finally, People in the North really knew the war was go going to be won. Mm -hmm. And April 1865, he dies. There was euphoria after Appomattox mm -hmm. and then profound national depression afterward. Mm -hmm. And his death was really seen largely, but not entirely, through a kind of Christian lens of martyrdom. Right. You know, had Lincoln survived through. Reconstruct. Nobody knows what Lincoln's reconstruction would have been, except that Andrew Johnson did believe he was carrying out Lincoln's reconstruction. Mm -hmm. That's often forgotten. Now, uh, uh, Andrew Johnson was a small man, mm -hmm. small, limited man. Not stupid by any means, but mm -hmm. small, politically limited, and and political, and not very skilled, mm -hmm. given the burden that he had to carry. But he did think that the reconstruction that he was pursuing was what Lincoln intended. Mm -hmm. And would Lincoln still have the same reputation today had his reconstruction been anything like Johnson's? Maybe not. Maybe not. It's interesting. You do, you do talk about several things that, that uh, Lincoln does with reconstruction. For example, a, a, a bold reconstruction bill is passed by the Senate, and he uses the pocket veto to not put it into place because he doesn't think Congress should make this choice. He, sh he should make it. And... Yeah, several other things like that. One other tangent, you, you mentioned Sherman there for one second with the March on Atlanta. You said in the, your book that the March on Atlanta wasn't quite as, as fiery, perhaps, as, as uh, the image of it. So, well, you're really referring to the March to the Sea. March to the Sea to Savannah. Uh, right, right, Lincoln, right. Lincoln uh, rather, uh, Sherman fought every inch of the way to Atlanta, although he, he was brilliant, brilliant strategist. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the March to the Sea, that's to say from Atlanta to Savannah right. in the autumn of 1864, and then from Savannah northward into North Carolina in the spring of 1865, uh, were, were, well, canonized would be entirely the wrong word, mm -hmm. but, but made notorious, let's yeah. say, by Southern revisionists. Mm -hmm. And bear in mind that the original revisionists of American history were the lost cause Southerners mm -hmm. who revised what the war was about. They revised the story of slavery and so on and so on. And they revised the story of Reconstruction. We're finally in the process of dismantling mm -hmm. that highly erroneous uh, interpretation of, of, of history that survived so long after the war. Yeah. Anyway, 
So Sherman marched to, uh, from Atlanta to Savannah and then northward. Southerners proclaimed that to have been a war crime, an unending series of war crimes. Mm-hmm. Now, this is primarily after the war. Mm-hmm. After the war, it becomes a keystone, the keystone of the lost cause ideology, which is a post-war mm-hmm. ideology. Sherman's march actually was very self-contained. There was no wholesale ravaging of the South. He marched, his troops marched on corridors. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. In those corridors, they took the food they needed and they burned public facilities and destroyed railroads Mm -hmm. and uh, armories, things like that. There was no savagery perpetrated against the civilian population. Mm -hmm. There was no, there's almost no proof of more than a tiny handful of rapes, mm-hmm. which Southerners have typically cited almost at the top of their list of the crimes perpetrated. There are virtually no documentable cases. There are few. Mm-hmm. And so on. It was, on the whole, pretty well controlled, unless you happen to be right in the path of a march, in which case you were going to lose your, your, your corn and your, your pigs. That's right. true. And you might lose your, if you put up a fight, you'd lose, your house might be burned. Right. The one state that really received some targeted, deliberate uh, uh, burning was was South Carolina. Why? It was the hotbed of the Civil War, Mm -hmm. the cradle of secession. And uh, had the South Carolinians not been so passionate and and persuasive in 1860 and 61, Mm -hmm. the Civil War might not have happened the way it happened. Mm -hmm. And Sherman's men did take some of their bitterness out in South Carolina. One of the very, uh, again, a tangent, one of the interesting proposals was that, I don't remember which one was it, Fessenden, uh, one of the men suggested that that the North buy out the slaves, uh, you know, that buy a whole bunch of slaves, their freedom, um, and that would have cost $60 million and that that would be cheaper than the war. Very interesting financial approach to trying to solve the problem. That's precisely what the British did in the West Indies. Right. Uh, a, a generation earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, that idea of purchasing um, the freedom of the millions of slaves in the South was advanced by a few people in the Whig Party as early as the 1840s. Mm-hmm. It was the one policy which could have prevented the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And it could have, and it would have. Why wasn't it tried? Because the South didn't want to, Southerners didn't want to sell their slaves. Mm-hmm. They wanted to profit from them. Mm-hmm. They wanted to profit from them. And, and owning slaves was the Southern version of the American dream. Mm-hmm. You might not have slaves, but you wanted slaves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Slaves multiplied. They made you richer. Mm-hmm. They made more slaves. They made you richer. Uh, Southern, Southerners had no incentive. They believed in slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a school of apologists for the South that said, well, they didn't really. Well, they did. Mm-hmm. If you read the, the ordinances of secession of the several Southern states, that's slavery. Read what Southerners were saying in Congress for years before the Civil War. When they're talking about constitutional rights, they're talking about protecting their slaves. Mm-hmm. It, they were totally clear about it. Mm-hmm. Nobody was confused in 1861. Right. And nobody was even trying to hide it. No. No, it wasn't. No, it was wasn't. self-evident. And, and uh, you, you, again, another tangent, but you have so many good ones. You, you mentioned something from Samuel Morse. That his quote. Go ahead. Uh, you can you can tell. I just think well, that was very interesting because he 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 makes it very clear what the religious argument is. Yeah. Well, Sa- Samuel Morse, the inventor of the telegraph, of mm-hmm. course, was uh, certainly a very interesting man. He was a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, an artist. 
mm-hmm. and he was an inventor, as we know. He was also a propagandist for slavery mm-hmm. during the war. During the war, he, pub- he, he ran an entire publishing operation, publishing pamphlets defending slavery, the subjugation of black people, mm-hmm. and particularly retailing biblical or alleged biblical arguments, just, not just justifying slavery, but mandating slavery. Right. Uh, it was God's will because yeah. obedience to God is yeah. the thing. And so obedience and uh, enslavement to a higher being is exactly the model we're following here. Uh, of course, they are saying that, that white supremacists are a higher being and therefore there should be obedience to them. You're precisely right. It's yeah. a remarkable argument. It really is. It, it's, it's hard to get into that frame, framework of mind, but, uh, but there it is, Samuel Morse, somebody that we, we all know, used the Morse code, et cetera, et cetera. That was one of his arguments. There was a pamphlet that was put out, which uh, I think coined the word miscegenation too, which was a, a political dirty trick. That's yes. another funny thing that, funny uh, in, in ironic sense yeah. uh, or, or strange yeah. sense um, that happened during the, during the Civil War too. What, you want to yeah, sure. About that? In 1863, this pamphlet appeared. It's quite long actually. And by the way, it's, it's online. You can, you can find this and download it. It's mm-hmm. called Miscegenation. Mm-hmm. It coined the word miscegenation. It was never in use before 1862-63. And <laughs> as you said, it was a dirty trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the dirtiest Mm-hmm. of tricks. It, it is a screed, a polemic, seeming to have been written by an abolitionist, mm-hmm. calling for race mixing, mm-hmm. preaching race mixing. And of course, subtext there, it's all about sex. Right. It's all about black men taking white women mm-hmm. and producing uh, mulatto children, as they were called. Mm-hmm. And uh, the author of this also wrote very disparagingly about the Irish as being beneath Negroes. Mm-hmm. The word Negro is the, word, the polite word that was in use during the war. I right. used it in my book. And, and so on. Uh, it went on for many, many pages. And it, it, was, it was read on the floor of Congress. It was cited by one of my favorite, least favorite figures, a man named Samuel Sunset Cox, right. a, another um, semi-anti-war Democrat uh, who read it into the congressional record and discussed it and so on. It got a lot of play in the papers. The truth about abolitionists, mm-hmm. they, 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 they want black men to take your white daughters and wives. And, 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 and played on the Irish and, and German immigrants that, they were, that the abolitionists thought that they were inferior to the Negro. And in addition to that, it, what, what I found fascinating was it fooled some of the abolitionists. Yes. Uh, Henry Beecher Ward, I think. Or? Henry Ward Beecher. Henry Ward Beecher, sorry. Yeah. 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 Uh, yes, it did. A few abolitionists lent their praise to this book. Right. It turned out, wow. as you said, <laughs> dirty trick. It was actually a fake, yeah. fake news, a complete fake that was written by a couple of uh, New York Democratic journalists, mm-hmm. very possibly at the instigation of the same congressman, Samuel Sunset Cox, mm-hmm. who read it into the record. Mm-hmm. And its intent was specifically to undermine the Republican Party yeah. uh, by tainting them with... with extreme racial viewpoint. You know? Yeah, an extreme yeah. racial viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a great story. It's a great story. And, and you, you wove it into your story. So let's go to the main part of your story, okay. which is these, these four congressional leaders, uh, three who, who move things forward positively, one who uh, was basically saying all the time, we can do better if we don't have a war, we just make a deal with the, the South, and if they want to be their own country, they can be their own country, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So why don't you take them uh, one at a time? Maybe we can move back to, to, sure. to the uh, characters. And 
because their faces are great. You, you, you think 19th century, especially this guy. Just, he, he, he looks like firmness, like the rock of... of, of uh, <laughs> yes, he does. Well, as I said, this, this, is, this is Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania and uh, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. He was so tough, so caustic, uh, so combative, and such a brilliant speaker in Parliament that he was often referred to as the chairman of the Committee of Mean Ways. <laughs> he was uh, bald from a very early age as a result of di- uh, disease and wore a, this rather flamboyant wig, and uh, which he would occasionally, in the midst of debate, whip off for dramatic <laughs> effect. Uh, he also had a club foot. Uh-huh. Uh, which also, instead of uh, being embarrassed or ashamed of it, he would sometimes rather, he would get up and he'd ostentatiously drag his leg across the floor of the Senate uh, and people would watch the leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, I said Senate is the House. And he was marvelous. Uh, uh, he, he also had a very interesting relationship with a woman named Lydia Smith, who mm-hmm. was a mixed-race person. Mm-hmm. Uh, she identified as black. There are those who say, ah, well, it must have been a, a, a common-law marriage. It probably was not. Probably was not, although the jury is not in on that. But he, he would be her escort to, to public events, mostly in Pennsylvania, where, where he was based. And it was extraordinary for the time. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary for the time. He was re-elected over and over and over again by a constituency that was partly... Pennsylvania Dutch conservative, mm-hmm. but he was such a good congressman for his mm-hmm. district that they elected him anyway, right. in spite of his abolitionism. And Thaddeus Stevens, right from the beginning of the war, hammered and hammered, and along with Ben Wade, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, we've talked about already as well, hammered at, at the urgency of taking steps towards emancipation, finding ways to protect slaves who fled to Union lines, and and the Confederacy hemorrhaged enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Yes, they, they they wherever they could wherever Union armies marched, slaves broke free. Mm-hmm. And and Stevens then continued to argue for the recruitment of black troops, right? Which was very controversial, extremely controversial. Nobody knew at the beginning whether white one would 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 Negroes fight. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it sounds it's a repellent question to pose, but it was posed all the time, every day. Yeah, they were, they were yeah. thought to be unmanned by having been yeah. enslaved, yeah. Um, which all kinds of people make that argument all the time. But uh, the facts, uh, as you point out very clearly for those who fought, uh, were quite the opposite of that. They were, they were braver, uh, on average probably, than, than a lot of the other uh, soldiers that yeah, were extraordinary, Extraordinarily yeah. bri- brave, because if they, if they were captured, odds are very high that they would be executed, right. unlike white soldiers. And there were, as we mentioned the Fort Pillow massacre earlier, mm-hmm. there were others uh, on a smaller scale, but still pretty awful, mm-hmm. where black troops are simply massacred mm-hmm. uh, by, by the Southerners, and so on. And the Countless black men, 170,000 right. uh, black men served in the federal forces in the course of the war and fought in many battles very, very bravely. The film Glory, mm-hmm. which some of us, maybe I would hope most of us remember or have seen, which describes the most famous one, the battle at, uh, on Morris Island, Fort Wagner in mm-hmm. South Carolina, 1863, is pretty accurate. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Hollywood, yes, yeah. but it's pretty accurate. Anyway, Stevens argued repeatedly, passionately, and finally persuasively for the recruitment of black Americans. The other question at the beginning was, would white soldiers fight with blacks? Mm-hmm. On the same, I don't mean against each other, mm-hmm. but with each other. Mm-hmm. And there was grave doubt about that. And there were generals, federal generals, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, one of them who would not have black troops in his army. Mm-hmm. Others did. Grant expressed great admiration, finally, for, mm-hmm. for the performance of black troops in battle. And it was the performance of black soldiers in battle that was one of the major, most persuasive facts in, in, in swinging not just members of Congress, but also the Northern public mm-hmm. behind the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Mm-hmm. And 14th and 15th are post-war. Right, but yeah, but got started. Yeah. Before we get off of uh, Representative Stevens, uh, I want to talk just a little bit about, you mentioned the generals, General McClellan, because he was only 34 years old when he was put in charge of the whole army, and people all called him the Napoleon and so on and so forth. It's a remarkably awful story about what he, what he did and, and, and even uh, the insult that he gave to, to Lincoln, showing how, how, first of all, what people thought of Lincoln, but also what, what he thought of himself. So why don't you tell a little bit about the general before we, before we uh, move yeah, further in here. But, sure. George B. McClellan, uh, Little Mac. Mm-hmm. Loved by his troops. You, you loved. Loved by his troops. Yeah. He was a great example of a brilliant textbook general. Mm-hmm. So long as he, he had a textbook, he understood what it said brilliantly. In the field, he was pretty close to a, dis- a strategic disaster. Mm-hmm. He was afraid to fight. Mm-hmm. He was afraid to fight. He perennially, almost from the beginning of the war, and I should say, where does he fit in? He was the first overall commander of the Army of the Potomac, the main army of the North, based uh, around Washington, D.C., and it was a, a hope on, on, on everyone's part that the war would be over soon because he was given the task yes, of yes. marching right to Richmond and putting an end to it. Uh, it didn't yeah. happen like that. Yeah, it didn't happen like that. He, no matter how many troops he had, he always said the Confederates must have twice as many. Right. He never had enough. He always begged for more. He, he brutally criticized Lincoln and, and, and other leaders for not giving him enough men. If I don't win, it's because you didn't give me enough men. Yeah. But he was actually afraid to come to grips. Mm-hmm. And when he came to grips, he, he really couldn't pull off the victory either. I thought it was a, a great thing. that you, There's, a, there's a, a general understanding in psychology that oftentimes when someone criticizes another person, they reveal what they feel bad about themselves. And he has a criticism of Robert E. Lee, which is, uh, I'll, I'll quote it, which is in your book, and it's, it's just as perfect an example of this of any I've run into because he was writing either to Lincoln or somebody else uh, in the Defense Department about his opinion of Robert E. Lee. And he said he is, uh, I think he lacks moral firmness. <laughs> he would be irresolute in battle um, and uh, timid and, and so on, which, which sounded exactly like a self-description uh, and not at all a description of Robert E. Lee. Completely the opposite of Lee's way of yeah, fighting. Yeah, he's, exactly. He's remarkably aggressive, yeah, actually, yeah. to a fault. Yeah. To a fault. Um, uh, I, lost I, a couple of battles because he was too aggressive. When I read that, I thought, well, the psychologist who came up with this idea must be very happy with this example. <laughs> uh, absolutely so. Yeah. Um, and McC- uh, McClellan was 
openly contemptuous of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Openly, he humiliated him on several occasions. I, I mean, in one particular case, and this might be the one you were thinking of, mm-hmm. uh, Lincoln went to McClellan's house in Washington mm-hmm. to talk with him. McClellan was out somewhere. Lincoln said, I'll wait. Here's the president of the United States sitting in, in McClellan's foyer, sitting, sitting, sitting. I don't know for how, quite some time, quite some time. Finally, Lincoln asks uh, one of the um, servants in the house, uh, when will Mr. M- uh, General McClellan be back? And he said, oh, he he came back a while ago, but he went to bed. Uh, it was the, the most errant, <laughs> errantly contemptuous uh, treatment that possibly any American ha- president has ever received yeah. in office. Sure seems like it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, the... You can only think of Douglas MacArthur or, you know, some some other general like that that would, might yes. try something like that with Truman. I mean, he didn't, but... Yeah, you know, Lincoln, was prepared, kind of... Lincoln was prepared to bear with a lot mm-hmm. if McClellan won battles, but mm-hmm. he didn't win them. Right. He didn't win he them. He didn't even fight them. Uh, uh, yeah. No, I mean, he, he backed into them backed on in, a yeah. number of occasions, and he couldn't... When he did fight a major one, say, at Antietam in 1862, he really couldn't close the deal. Yeah. Should have been able to. He outnumbered the Confederates by a huge number, but he, he just wouldn't put enough soldiers into the field. So go ahead. Let's go to, to Ben. Sure. Ben Wade, Bluff Ben uh, from Ohio. I think we did talk a fair bit about uh, mm-hmm. Wade, Wade earlier. Yeah. Uh, and one of my favorite Wade stories, in fact, it is my favorite, occurred in 1861. And you, as you said a few minutes ago, most people expected the war to be over in a couple of weeks, months, probably, wouldn't even last three months. Mm -hmm. And they thought one battle would do it. So a highly unprepared Union army marched out from Washington in July of 1861 Mm -hmm. to Bull Run, uh, the Battle of Manassas, otherwise known as. And a fairly unprepared Confederate army met them there. Mm -hmm. And Ben Wade, along with quite a few other members of Congress and uh, gentlemen and ladies from Washington in their carriages drove down there to see the battle and were picnicking on hillsides overlooking the battlefield. Unbelievable. (laughs) Yes, quite so. And to cut a long, though very, very interesting story short here, Mm -hmm. the battle seesawed back and forth, and then the, the Union Army collapsed. It just collapsed. These were untried men. They became frightened. They panicked. Mm -hmm. They ran. Wade, with a number of other, well, a a fellow senator and a member of Congress in his carriage, got ahead of the route. Mm -hmm. They got out of it. They got ahead of it. And they were, Ben Wade was so angry to Mm -hmm. see the Union Army running. He pulled his carriage across the road in a wooded area that was not easily passable on both sides. And he and his friends, he took took out a, a, a rifle. Mm-hmm. Uh, as did um, Zachariah Chandler, his fellow senator, and another. And they pointed their guns at the federal troops and said, I will shoot the first man who runs past this carriage. Mm-hmm. And they succeeded in actually stemming the route for about 20 minutes, mm-hmm. which was time enough for some intact federal troops to come up and, and sort of bring this, this chaos under control. Those troops, incidentally, were under the command of William Tecumseh Sherman ah. in his first Civil War battle. So uh, this is a specula- pure speculation, but how many uh, senators uh, today do you think would pull off a trick like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that, there must be some. There must be some. I mean, <laughs> there, 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 are, there are a few war vets. 
Yes. Who might, who might possibly try it? But I, I, I hope certainly we never see a time when, when an American army is collapsing in front of our eyes yeah. and needs to be stopped by civilians. Yeah. And, uh, you have lots of really great stories about Ben uh, in, in the book. So uh, the next person that we have, right. Fessenden, we, we talked a little bit about the financial measures, but he, he did so many different things in addition to that. And, and, and maybe it's a good time to talk about the three of them and the, what they created yes. during this Congress, the Homestead Act, the Railroad Act, because that was during the middle of a war to do what they did. In addition to financing everything else, they voted a lot of things through that, that had an effect on America for a long time and the character of America. Okay. They did. We talked about the, the uh, Finances, creative yeah. fi- financial yeah. uh, work that they did. And also, although I want to bring this together in this here, is uh, the waging of the war, raising armies, mm-hmm. raising millions of armies with millions of men. This was hard. The army had 16,000 men mm-hmm. in, in April of 1861. It had millions by the end of the war. Uh, to do that successfully, to feed those armies, to, to uh, uh, provide horses for the cavalry, cannon for the artillery. This all came out of c- Congress had to, had to find the money to do that. That's what the money was about. Mm-hmm. It, it was actually keeping the armies in the field. And we've also talked a bit about the, the heroic um, uh, civil rights legislation, which finally led in 1865 to the ending of slavery in the 13th Amendment and then the post-war amendments as well, and the slow, steady march toward emancipation that took place during the war, led by members of Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were many pieces, um, there was a multitude of pieces of legislation that made that possible. It wasn't one thing right. one day. It took years of hard work by really skilled forward-looking and principled and moral uh, political leaders like the ones we've been talking about. Now, to get to the, uh, this juicy, these juicy examples that you, that you cited, here in the midst of a war that has the entire country uh, absorbed, and bear in mind that nobody's certain until late 1864 that the North is even going to win the war. The, the degree of anxiety anxiety that pervaded Washington and every one of these people we're talking about and Northerners in general was intense year after year after year. So against this backdrop, three pieces of three remarkable pieces, pieces of legislation are passed. The Transcontinental Railroad Act, which uh, made it possible to build the railroad, which connected the East Coast with California. Mm-hmm. Very important out here, but I, I had a yeah. question about that. I was wondering how important it was to get the gold back from, I mean, was this like the equivalent of of making sure we got the oil from the Middle East uh, after World War II or whatever, because uh, the North needed that that gold and silver? Uh, They did. They did. Otherwise, it it had to be carried by steamships, Mm -hmm. uh, either around Cape Horn or down to Panama overland through the Isthmus and then on steamships again up the East Coast in the middle of a war. Mm -hmm. That's true. But... Still far seen. I mean, very far seen. Uh, uh, what has to, to, to put it in historical context, however, at the beginning of the war, secession, the danger of secession wasn't only about the several Confederate states. Mm-hmm. The great fear among unionists from Lincoln, along with all these other men, was that secession would set a precedent. Mm-hmm. If one section seceded, why not another and another and another and another? Mm-hmm. And I've written about that at some length in the book. Right. And the 
next most likely candidate for secession was the West Coast. Mm-hmm. It was California, uh, Oregon, and the state of Washington. And that's why it always keeps coming up. Whenever uh, California doesn't get its way, everyone wonders whether they're going to join Canada or start its own nation. Or but it, 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 It's it, a history. Even then, and then it was, this, it was a, a huge region, right. as, as we know. We're sitting here in California. We, right. we here know how big it is. Exactly. It could have sustained itself. Mm-hmm. It had wealth. Yeah. It had a coastline. And the best weather. And <laughs> by far the best weather. <laughs> People in Washington knew that. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a dire fear that, that the West would go its own way if mm-hmm. the South succeeded. There were fears that other sections would also secede, by the way. But so the railroad was also a way to permanently link, it was the way mm-hmm. to permanently link this West Coast and to enable it to be settled faster. And the other, the Homestead Act, uh, you know, filled up the land in between and, and the land-grant colleges create, uh, you know, colleges for everybody. I mean, it's just, um, you know, thinking of all the pieces, almost like city planners, but nation planners and saying, what will we need to make that whole area work? Obviously, uh, it, the Homestead Act, uh, as good as it was for all the people that moved out and how useful that was for what they were trying to accomplish, obviously was not very good for the Native Americans because it ruined their land. Um, so uh, everything has its uh, negative uh, connotations too. But um, it, it is amazing in the middle of all this problem that they could think of all those things, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, imagine that one, one needs to do that. And it was basically the leadership of not just these three men, but another four or five uh, leaders in, in, in the Senate and the Congress that made that kind of thing happen against what one would think uh, would be the normal sort of, not laziness, but I- inertia that would stop people from trying to do something big in, in the midst of a crisis. Yeah. These, these, these men, and I don't mean only these three, but, right. but the leadership of the Republican Party mm-hmm. at the time was visionary. Mm-hmm. They were visionaries. Uh, now, y- you made the point, quite rightly, that the homesteading and the railroad were a disaster for Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Absolutely true. Uh, they also helped create the country that we know today. Mm-hmm. This is, it made it possible for us to be who we are as a nation and as a people, mm-hmm. okay? And these, this was visionary. Mm-hmm. You might not like some of the results, but right. it was visionary. And progressive-minded, and I just mean forward-looking, forward-looking legislators had been talking about these things for years, since the 1840s, uh, since the 1840s. Uh, even before the gold rush, mm-hmm. there was talk of a western, a great western highway, mm-hmm. uh, a wagon before road. Before the railroad, yeah. Yeah, before the railroad. It, one of the details that you had that was really great yeah. was the fact that the South seceded and therefore left all their places, allowed the Republicans to vote through what they wanted to because they, their opposition was no longer there to vote against them. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was very interesting yeah. that they picked up all those pieces that they had wanted to yeah. pass for such a long time and then ran them through. They were bottlenecked by, yeah. by the South. The South did not want the federal government involved in projects like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially ones that would facilitate westward settlement by Northerners, which all those, all those uh, projects would. Um, I should say parenthetically, George, since you brought it up, I, I, I argue in the book, doesn't take much to argue it because it's mm-hmm. fairly self-evident, the Civil War Congresses, there were two of them, 37th and 38th, were among the very most productive Congresses in all of American history. I'd say among the top three or four. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the one, the Revolution, yeah. uh, and then the New Deal one. Yeah, and, as, and, and, and maybe Great Society, Great New society. Deal, yeah. uh, Civil War Congresses, and the first Congress mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, what do these all have in common? Well, one thing is one party had had a gigantic majority. Mm -hmm. Why was that true during the Civil War? Well, most a lot of the Democrats weren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. they, they, they abandoned their posts. They abandoned their posts. They left. They went with the Confederacy and the Democratic Party in the North split in two. One of your fun stories is about the, the I think, uh, from Kentucky or Tennessee, there was a senator who just kept hanging out, even though oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. even though everybody else was gone. He just kept hanging out uh, and said, well, I'm, I'm still a senator and I get to vote and I, I'm going to cause problems. And I don't know. He what did. Was, and he did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. From <laughs> Texas. It was, it was from Texas? Texas. Uh, uh. Yeah, yeah, but then he, but then uh, when he when he learned that Fort Sumter was going to be fired on, he rushed to South Carolina so that he could be one of the first ones to pull a lanyard to fire a cannon, <laughs> and and then he rode out, or had himself rode out by slaves, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, out to Fort Fort Sumter to to personally try to take the fort surrender. <laughs> Theatrical. So I uh, want to make sure that we get this question in. Warren B. asked, he's looked at the Wikipedia article on Sherman's March to the Sea and where it says his forces followed a scorched earth policy, destroying military targets as well as industry, infrastructure and civilian property. Is Fergus claiming that Sherman did not issue special field orders number 120, which laid the basic framework for the destruction ultimately wrought? So, OK, uh, well, I, th I thought I, I, I already made this point right. earlier, but to make it in a in a briefer in in, in a, more briefly mm -hmm. say that i did say and it's absolutely accurate that sherman's forces destroyed infrastructure right yes they destroyed railroads they destroyed armories they destroyed anything that had war making or war sustaining capacity uh did they uh help uh enslaved people along the line of march they certainly did mm -hmm. did they did they confiscate foodstuffs they absolutely did. They fed themselves. That's what they fed themselves right. with. Scorched earth. Even, it was not a scorched earth policy. That, that is a, that's a term that's applied, I think, kind of loosely over and over and over to Sherman's campaigning and some other wartime situations. And it, it gives you the impression of a vast swath of desolation. That was not the case. I recommend uh, uh, the viewer uh, mm -hmm. to read a terrific, new, very fair-minded, uh, not a hagiographic biography of Sherman mm -hmm. uh, by uh, Brian Reed. Okay. Just out, just out a couple of months ago. And it covers all of this in great in detail, the facts sifted uh, from, from falsehood. Great. Um, we have time for one more question. And uh, the question is about um, this uh, argument that kept going on between should we have the slaves freed and fight for us or not? And that went on quite a ways. I mean, it, it, they really didn't start fighting. I mean, there were some uh, black troops before, but not the former slaves. But once they got those slaves involved or once they convinced people, it, there was, as you said, all the way up to 170,000 fighting. And it was crucial to the war effort, right. and it was part of the war effort that then helped win the war. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and so the question was, how did these three men come down on, on, on that? So we know how Valen Digheim uh, thought about it. Um, but how did these three men come down on that issue of, of employing the uh, African-American uh, former slaves or free them to, to, to fight and also to use it as a, 
a way of undercutting the economy of the South by, by, by giving everybody an idea that they can leave their masters. Right? All true. Uh, I think it might be helpful to think of the entry of uh, um, black troops into mm. the federal armies uh, as analogous as analogous to the entry of the United States into World War I, when uh-huh. the European powers were exhausted mm-hmm. and American troops made it possible for the Allies to actually win the war decisively. Mm-hmm. And black troops in the Civil War, I think, I think it can be argued plausibly that that, the, that very large number of black troops made it possible for the Union to win decisively. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Uh, Okay, one one of the, the the reasons for the pressure to recruit black troops was the fact that uh, the, the so many white men had been lost, mm-hmm. and uh, it, this is fundamentally a kind of racist argument that was made, but it was often said, and it was persuasive for many legislators and northern citizens. Would you rather have? black cannon fodder or white cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. This is an ugly way of putting it, Mm -hmm. but it certainly swayed many people whose sons, brothers, fathers uh, were already, had been killed already or Mm -hmm. were in danger of being killed. Uh, Said, uh, you know, a black man can take a a bullet as well as a white man, you know, and so on. Uh, uh, Thaddeus Stevens and Ben Wade were ardent advocates of recruiting black troops. Mm. William P. Fessenden became one pretty quickly. Mm. Fessenden counts as a Republican conservative uh, within right. the context of the time. He was not a radical, but he allied himself with the radicals during the war because he understood that, that their approach to the war was the necessary one in order to win it. And he was willing to embrace what were then called radical policies. Uh, well, so I think that brings us to... What I wanted to finish with, um, and that is, this war would never have been won without compromising, without and out races. That is on the side of the North. That, that, that you, these congressmen had to figure out how to get total racists. They were abolitionists, but total racists to agree with them. Some of the abolitionists were racist. In addition to being abolitionists, uh, a lot of people wanted the Africans all to go to another country, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the reason I pointed out is because a lot of people right now are purists. They, they, they don't want to deal with anybody who's ever done anything or even watch the movie of somebody who's ever done anything that they disagree with and so on. And th- this is such a good example of, of, of the, uh, the bankruptcy of that idea towards human civilization. Uh, it, it's sloppy, it's messy, a lot, but, but if you don't figure out how to get people on a page... And, and maybe you can say a little bit about that, but it's a perfect example. I, I hope that we don't have to have that vicious an example again, that we've made a lot of progress since, since then. Um, but we're, we have to compromise on some things or we're not going to talk to anybody else, right? Yes, uh, for sure. Um, I think Thaddeus Stevens in particular, uh, maybe we can... Thaddeus Stevens in particular mm-hmm. uh, represents your point. Mm-hmm. He was the most radical uh, Republican in Congress. Others were, were pretty much in the same zone, but he was outspoken mm. and he was a, something of an elder statesman in that category, political category. Uh, we've talked about that already, but he was also a consummate politician. He was a consummate uh, pragmatist and dealmaker 
and and he understood what was possible, and that what was possible was not uh, was might not be that the perfect was rarely possible. Right. But you might get to the perfect mm. by starting with the possible, and he's a wonderful demonstration of how that was accomplished during the Civil War uh, by gradually winning, finding finding ways of uh, creating policy, crafting policy mm. with the alliance in alliances with people who were not radical at all. Right. I mean, Fessenden himself was not a radical in his heart. He was, he was, he was a, a, you know, a kind of crusty, crusty Yankee. Uh, <laughs> and he looks like one. Crusty Yankee conservative. Uh, well, I, I think your book is a great example of what can be accomplished by principled um, but pragmatic leaders um, who, who have a goal and a vision, like you said, um, but but know what it takes to get there um, and and can obfuscate just enough uh, to, to get there. <laughs> so uh, a good lesson for, for the current times when we're not getting much done. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Fergus, for uh, sharing your book with us, uh, Congress at War. And uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you, George. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Music